I asked them to go into the bank and ask a financial advisor if they could build them a portfolio of the bank's in-house index funds. And in every single instance, the advisor tried to talk them out of it. Welcome again to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti, and it's great to have you with us. Today on the podcast, I have a spirited chat with Andrew Hallam, former school teacher, best-selling author, cyclist, runner, digital nomad, and a tireless advocate for investors everywhere. Now, if you don't know Andrew, he was born and raised in British Columbia, uh, and for several years, he was a teacher at the Singapore American School, and one of the subjects he taught there was personal finance. Now, it turned out he ended up teaching not only his young students, but his fellow teachers as well. As you'll hear, Andrew is passionate not only about investing, but about the importance of discipline saving and taking a frugal approach to spending, sometimes maybe a bit too frugal. Anyway, he's always been extremely generous with his knowledge. He used to buy multiple copies of his favorite investing books so he could hand them out to his colleagues. And he still gives presentations to groups around the world, sharing his experience as he encourages people to take control of their own financial lives. Now, interestingly, Andrew was not always an indexer. In his younger days, he was actually a disciple of Warren Buffett and an enthusiastic stock picker. He also happened to be pretty good at it, or as he admits, maybe a bit lucky too. But in any case, after a decade or so of picking stocks, Andrew gave it all up to become an index investor. And he describes this background in his best-selling book, Millionaire Teacher, The Nine Rules of Wealth You Should Have Learned in School, which was first published in 2011 and is now available in a thoroughly revised second edition, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. We managed to catch up with Andrew after he and his wife rode their tandem bike across Europe and before he left for the Middle East. Hope you enjoy the interview. So my guest on the podcast today is Andrew Hallam, who's joining us from Victoria. Andrew? Victoria, BC right now. Yeah, I'm just here visiting family. Yeah, because we're going to get to this in a little bit, but uh, yeah, you're quite a globetrotter these days and so it's hard to, to get you down in one place, so I'm glad that we tracked you down. So um, I want to kick off uh, today just by asking you to share a little bit about your own evolution because, you know, many investors embrace index investing after failing miserably as stock pickers. But you were an enthusiastic stock picker, you know, in your younger days, but you were hardly a failure at it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Well, I guess like most people, I I started out with with mutual funds when I was 19 and, uh, I started out with funds from CIBC and then ended up getting convinced to go with a actively managed funds with investors group. It was kind of like somebody convinced me that a Mars bar would be healthier than a, a Kit Kat. Uh, then I started to really delve into investment books. I ended up reading uh, Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor. Robert Hagstrom wrote a whole series of really great books on uh, how to invest like Warren Buffett. I think the Warren Buffett way was his first one. Um, Philip Fisher's book, common stocks and uncommon profits. And I just kept reading about how to pick individual stocks. And then I started to to build a portfolio of individual stocks and then later adding some ETFs to it. And I hated the idea of, of losing money. So I was, I was quite conservative in terms of, or maybe I was uh, fastidious might've been a better word to describe in terms of the research that I would do and looking into what businesses that I was going to buy I ended up in the late 90s joining an investment club 
And I was the youngest guy among the group. And at that time, there was a big push to buy internet stocks. And many of those companies, which as we know now, weren't really making any profits. So it was, it was in contrast with what I was reading. Um, but of course, like many people, I ended up getting kind of swept up into it and started adding internet stocks to my personal portfolio as well. And I was getting, though, voted out in terms of often we'd come to these investment club meetings and I would talk about, hey, look, you know, um, Robert, Robert Hagstrom says Buffett invests this way. or Phil Fisher says we should be looking at these sorts of metrics. And we were, were buying some high tech stuff. And, and eventually um, I did buy a couple of tech companies and then quit this investment club. And then I ended up sort of quitting it just just at the, at the right time and then the dot-com bubble uh crashed and uh, and then this group of guys said well why don't you continue to manage the the investment club you manage the investment club we were they were going to fold it and they said could you just could you just do it i don't actually think that's legal but um <laughs> but but that's what i ended up doing and it was kind of fun to do that i enjoyed the process uh, I, I ended up doing well as an investor in individual stocks, um, both the investment club and then my own personal portfolio. And, and we, we beat the index uh, by an average of about 2% a year over about a 10 or 11 year period. But then I started to think like I had some ETFs in my personal portfolio and probably around the year 2010, I started thinking, you know, that's not a long time frame. I'd been doing it for whatever it was, 11 or 12 years of picking individual stocks it wasn't a long time frame to, to justify that, hey, I was actually good at what I was doing. And I looked at guys like Bill Miller. Do you remember that guy? I do. He had something like 15 years of beating the index in a row. Yeah, he ran the Lake Mason Value Trust, I think it was called. And he had beaten the S&P 500 uh, 15 years in a row. And, and that idea sort of combining with reading a lot of other stuff, random walk down Wall Street, common sense on mutual funds that were saying, you know, the idea that somebody can beat the market index consistently over a lifetime of investing, and that's the real key here. I'd only been doing it for whatever, a dozen years, which is a blip. And recognizing that a guy like Bill Miller, who I figured was a heck of a lot smarter than me, eventually um, had his really bad day. And what is fascinating now is that although that fund, people were talking about this guy as the sort of the, the greatest invent, investor of the, the 20th century or one of the greatest mutual fund investors ever. If we look at uh, his actual mutual fund now, uh, including that great 15 year run, it, it's underperformed the market. So was it sustainable or would it have been sustainable for me to continue to do well? The odds were against it. And so I fully decided, I decided to, to fully index my portfolio. So after you were done impersonating a mutual fund manager for a dozen years or so, you decided to go really where all the money is and that's in being a writer. And uh, <laughs> you, you published your first book, uh, Millionaire Teacher, which I have to say, uh, in terms of the books that get mentioned on my website, it really is the one that people continually tell me that they they go to. So congratulations on the success of it uh, and also on the publication of the second edition. I want to just talk to you a little bit about the way you've organized the book because I really like the way it's set up as sort of nine lessons, which you know makes sense from the teacher uh, point of view. But 
the first lesson in the book is spend like you want to grow rich. And I really like that you started there because having talked to so many young investors, it seems to me like they think that successful investing is about picking the right funds and they forget the most important thing is that before you invest, you need to actually start saving. Yeah. You know, the easiest way to have twice as much money in retirement is, is to save twice as much. And the earlier you actually start saving, then you can, you're not only utilizing how much money you're putting away, but you're utilizing time and compound interest. So one of the things that, that I tell people that are suggest people do is to, to set a savings goal and that being the most important thing. So beginning of the year, figure out what's your savings goal for the given year and, and actually post it somewhere. You're going to see it, uh, stick it where obviously if you're having friends coming over for uh, a, a party at your place, you don't necessarily want to see that up on the wall. Uh, but I used to put it in the cupboard and as I'd open up my cupboard, and I'd see my, my, my shirts for the morning and figure out what I'm going to wear. It would be facing me right there. It would be a goal for that year in terms of how much I was going to be saving. And then every single month, I would write down what I did save so that I'd set that goal. And, and studies are showing that if you set a goal and then, two, you share it, you you tell some like-minded people and you could cheer each other on, it's a really important thing to do. So the, the second most or might even be the most important thing is to track your spending. Very few people know how much they're actually spending. And so we have, uh, for years, I just had a, a little brown book and I would write in how much money I was actually spending. Uh, if I bought a chocolate bar, I would write it in and figure out what I was spending per week and per month. I didn't have a budget. I felt like budgets were kind of like diets. I felt that it was more important. And too, when you look at studies that show that, you know, when you look at a single biggest variable for you know, actual people losing weight. It's not as a one isolated variable. It's not typically just the exercise or just typically um, what you're eating. It's the fact that they write down what they eat. And when you're doing the same thing with spending money, what ends, ends up happening is you start seeing where it's going and you're kind of ashamed to put down that, you know, oh man, is that $4 coffee at Starbucks or whatever it would be. Probably even more than that. I don't know. Can tell I don't go there, can you? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean this idea that that just to be accountable to yourself and to to try to quantify all of those things just makes you by nature pay more attention to it. Yeah, hugely, hugely, and and then too, and looking at things in terms of what you are spending money on and how you can save money. So one of the things I suggest is that people don't lease cars, for example. Uh, that's far more costly than buying a, a decent used vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I think cars and houses are the two things that people overspend on the most. And it makes sense. Those are obviously, you know, necessarily large expenses, but certainly you can go, you can go overboard. But uh, I wanted to ask you, the speaking of going overboard, uh, you uh, had some pretty extreme examples of frugality in your book that I thought made great anecdotes. I mean, you talk about this, uh, uh, at one point you were riding your bike 35 miles both ways to work, right? 35 miles there and then the same 35 back because you didn't want to buy a car and you didn't want to spend a lot of money on uh, <laughs> on rent closer to work. And then your dad came to visit you one winter and you didn't turn the heat on and he wasn't too impressed by that. So I wonder though, if you know, you you talk to a lot of young investors today, do you feel that this kind of extreme frugality is is necessary? Do you worry that those kind of lessons might turn people off. 
and, uh, there's no doubt I was crazy. And, and I mentioned that too in my book, you know, where I said, this is not a how to plan. This is just, <laughs> you want to see what I did and how extreme I was, have a good read and have a laugh. But I do think that I sort of look back at that, uh, Dave Ramsey quote. He's that U.S., um, radio talk show money guy and, and one of the things he talks about is uh, one of the famous quotes he bashes around is uh, live like no one else now so you can live like no one else later. And I like that because I think that to be successful financially, you do have to be a little bit different and because normal isn't good. The normal isn't quite good enough. That sounds a little bit crazy, but when we look at what's normal, there's that, that transunion study that I saw on, on CBC reporting that the average Canadian owes $21,000 in, in consumer debt, much of that which would probably be automobile debt. We can't quite be normal. I don't think we need to be absolutely extreme because that isn't any fun and that may not be sustainable and it's a little bit crazy. It leaves you with great stories to tell. <laughs> but um, but I do think that we can't do exactly what we're seeing the people do around us. And that's what makes it challenging is that our peers, our friends, our colleagues are setting a, a benchmark of what's actually normal. And we have to be more careful than the typical Canadian if we want to succeed financially. Now, the fourth rule in the book is called conquer the enemy in the mirror. And this is a chapter that deals with many of the behavioral issues that all investors face. It's such an important idea. Um, you have taught a lot of investors over the years. You've been part of stock clubs and so on. So you've probably seen a lot of bad behavior. So what is the biggest behavioral pitfall that you think investors face? I think it's uh, listening to the media. It's listening to investment market forecasts, which typically end up being wrong and it it's a it's something when you're to be a good investor you have to you have to be able to control your emotions and be objective and stick to a, a solid consistent plan with very consistent rules but the media bombards people and I, th I think that's the biggest problem that that i see um is that i get emails from people telling me oh this these analysts are all saying bonds are going to crash and I've got to get out of my bonds. U.S. stocks are going to crash. Emerging markets are going to crash. Have you seen what's happening in China? I've got to get out of my merge. That kind of thing. And, and, and of course, what bleeds leads typically in, in, in the world of media. And there's no shortage of people calling the next Armageddon. But I would say, man, if you could just put cotton in your ears, never turn on CNBC and never <laughs> never read uh, up-to-date market-based news and what analysts are saying or forecasting. If you can do that, uh, if, you can, if you can keep away from that, I'd say that's probably a, a significant advantage. What do you think? I mean, it's a great question you ask me. What do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting because I get this question a lot. People say, you know, why do you think that investors who use an indexing strategy, for example, are any more disciplined than those who use more active strategies? And I think it's a fair enough question. I mean, I know, you know, working with clients and getting emails from hundreds of readers that just because you use an indexing strategy certainly doesn't mean that you are going to be a more disciplined investor. But 
you actually touched on this in the chapter, and I think it, it's a good sort of follow-up question, is that there is actually some evidence that index investors tend to be a little bit more disciplined. There was some data showing, for example, that most investors underperform the funds that they hold, presumably because of bad timing. Um, but index funds have a little bit better record in that sense, in that it seems that their unit holders hold on to the funds for longer periods, are less likely to pull the money out when markets are down, etc. And I, I know you've dealt with this and some other writers have sort of asked this question, you know, does that mean that index investors are, are smarter than others? And I don't think that's true, but I don't know, what do, what do you feel in terms of the conviction that indexers have that may be, may be a little bit different from, from active investors? I think active investors, they have to worry about two things. They, they worry about where the markets are actually headed and they worry about how their funds are doing compared to the market itself. And, and I would say the same thing for smart beta funds as well. Um, it's very much the same where a traditional index fund investor just really sets a belief that they'll track the market and that the market's very difficult to beat. So they accept that they likely won't be able to beat it. And part of that emotional pull is gone. Now, all they really have to concern themselves with is saving money. And hopefully they don't even concern themselves about where the market is headed. But if you're an actively managed mutual fund investor or picking individual stocks, you're believing somewhere that you can gain an edge. So there's that two aspects that pull at you. How well is the market doing and how are you doing relative to the market? And I think that extra component makes people a little bit more emotional and reactive. And I think that's the reason most actively managed uh, or most investors in actively managed funds underperform their funds by greater percentage than the typical index fund investor underperforms theirs. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a sort of second element, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that index investors don't have to worry about the markets because they do, but they don't have to worry about the markets and about how their fund manager is going to react, right? So removing one of those variables, I think, makes for a, a smoother ride. You know, which sort of leads into the next issue that I wanted to talk with you about. You mentioned smart beta, alternative indexing, whatever reason uh, or whatever uh, label you want to put on it. Um, you've written a fair bit about some of these alternative indexing strategies. So these are any strategies that would deviate from a very traditional couch potato approach, which is just based on, you know, market cap weighted indexes. Um, I'm, I've written about them too. I'm attracted to the idea in principle, but I guess over the years I've sort of learned that simple is better and it's too easy to go down this slippery slope of looking for something better. What's your experience been like uh, in talking to investors about these kinds of strategies? Well, I think you're right. You could take the, the fundamental indexes, for example, which I think are, when you really boil it down and look at what are these things, um, they've got more of a value tilt to them. So you can see, all right, studies suggest that value stocks long-term have outperformed growth stocks and the market long-term, but can go through really long, long periods where they don't. And, and, and that can be a problem when you have one of these strategies that has these fabulous back-tested results. And so people end up <clears throat> going into something like this. And I don't have anything 
against the fundamental indexes uh, in themselves. It's just that what I think most people would do is if they did build a portfolio with smart beta indexes or with fundamental indexes, I guess they're basically the same kind of thing, smart beta just being a fundamental, just being a a form of of outperforming the market with indexes. Uh, If it doesn't outperform, they're going to, in all likelihood, jump to something else. And so I think if somebody had rock solid conviction and they really felt that, okay, I've built this portfolio of fundamental indexes or ETFs and come hell or high water, I am going to hold this thing and I'm going to rebalance it once a year for the next 50 years. I I really don't have a problem with them doing that. I think they would probably do reasonably well, but the behavioral element comes into the equation again. And it becomes really difficult if you have a portfolio like that. You notice that it's underperforming a couch potato for seven or eight years or has done for seven or eight years, which, again, is, is a blip in stock market terms. But people think that's a really big deal. And so that same person would probably end up selling their fundamental index portfolio at somewhat of a low buying into a cap weighted portfolio, which would be perhaps where the, the entities are valued a little bit higher and and then end up sort of underperforming that fundamental index portfolio in the next 10 years. So they're perpetually sort of driving through that rear view mirror as a lot of people end up doing. And, and it's, they're destined to do poorly, I think, when they do something like that. So your model where you can suggest, all right, cap-weighted index funds, uh, couch potato portfolios, such as what I have, such as what you have, I think it removes that added element or that added the temptation to try that thing that might end up beating the market. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you've said a couple of times that sort of a 10 to 12 year period is a blip. And I mean, it is in terms of stock market data, but I've never met an investor who has any more patience than two, maybe three years for some kind of disappointment or underperformance. I don't know anybody who has held on to a strategy that's underperformed for five, six, seven years and confidently said over the long term, I think this is going to turn around. I just, we're not hardwired to think like that. You're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We're not. <laughs> now, you and I have both written a lot about how difficult it can be for investors to get started uh, in indexing, especially when they bring up the idea to financial advisors, because this is something I've heard from investors a lot. Some of them who are brand new say, you know, I, I mentioned this idea to my advisor and he was hostile to it. And they haven't figured out that that's the case for most advisors. Um, but this summer, I thought it was really interesting. You went you went a step further than just sort of talking about it, but you actually staged an experiment and you recruited, I guess it was four people uh, to go and visit their local bank branch and to ask the advisors there about index funds and see what the response would be like. And then you reported on it in the Globe and it's in the second edition of the book as well. So can you tell us a little bit about what you learned? Well, it was it was predictable. I mean, what I what I assumed would happen did happen where uh, four people went into different Canadian banks and they set up appointments to see financial advisors. They brought in either pen and paper or an iPhone to record the conversation. And and as as you know, the Canadian banks also offer their brand of in-house index funds. TD has them, CIPC, Royal Bank. And so I asked them to go into the bank and ask a financial advisor if they could build them a portfolio of the bank's in-house index funds. 
And in every single instance, the advisor tried to talk them out of it and presented them with uh, actively managed options that cost more than 2% per year instead. And we know how the banks earn their money. Um, We know that they make much more money when they can charge higher fees. And so the outcome was somewhat predictable. But I, I don't think the people, I don't think these advisors themselves were were necessarily bad people. I think that they were ill-informed. When I listened to the recordings, I was really surprised at some of the things that the advisors had said and how little knowledge they had. Uh, they didn't actually really understand that you could build an actual portfolio with index funds, which really surprised me. Some of them would say, well, one of them in particular said, well, how, which index fund would you want? I mean, if you go with this actively managed product, it's, it's diversified. But if you just pick a Canadian index, it just sits there and it's just a Canadian index. And of course, you and I would be thinking, that's just a piece of the puzzle. <laughs> you need to build a complete portfolio with those products. Uh, so it was, it was interesting. It was disturbing. Um, but it was predictable. Yeah, one of the things that I, I've I've found since becoming an advisor and going through all of the courses and uh, all of the registration requirements and things is I now have a much better idea of how most advisors in this country are educated and trained. And I, I think you're absolutely right. They're not bad people. Uh, and I don't even think that they're particularly cynical, at least not, I mean, there, I'm sure there are some, but it's not like they're all sitting around in the boardroom saying, look, we know index funds and index investing is a superior strategy, but we can't make any money. So we better go out and lie to our clients. I mean, there isn't any of that going on. I think there's a general ignorance of how index funds work, uh, how to build a diversified portfolio with index funds and ETFs. Um, you know, some of the comments from the people that you sent in undercover where, you know, the advisor said, well, they're too risky or they're not as well diversified. And I mean, I think it's just, it's just sheer ignorance. Um, it's not really any kind of conspiracy or, uh, you know, any, uh, attempt to mislead investors intentionally. I wanted to jump into talk a little bit about the series that you've been working on in the Globe and Mail. Uh, It's called Strategy Lab. And for listeners who aren't familiar with it, the idea is here that the Globe approached uh, four different investors uh, and asked them to build model portfolios based on four different strategies. So there's one guy uses a dividend strategy, another uses a value strategy. There's another one who uses uh, growth stocks, mostly in the tech sector. And then there's Andrew. And Andrew, you're the indexing guy. Now, you bravely went into do this uh, little exercise and, and they've been tracking the performance of the portfolios that uh, you have all created for about four and a half years now. And so you're in first place, right? After all this time? Oh, sure. <laughs> Are you no, I think now? Chris, uh, Chris Yumiostowski is in first place with a, with a growth portfolio, a stock, a uh, uh, portfolio of growth stocks. He's doing really well. Norm Rothery has a great, uh, portfolio of value stocks. And then John Heinzel's chosen, uh, dividend paying stocks. These guys are, are all really good stock pickers. There's no doubt about that. But, um, and yeah, so despite having a good 2016, my portfolio is in last place. 
And are you ready for my excuses? <laughs> well, I can anticipate your excuses, but I'll let you defend yourself. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, it, it, I, it was one of those things that I looked at and I thought, okay, it, when I see this kind of thing, typically it's a uh, stock picking contest or some kind of contest. It's crazy to actually, if you want to win a contest, it's crazy to put bonds in it at all into your portfolio. <laughs> But I decided that I wanted to create some kind of model, something that people could responsibly follow for their their TFSA accounts or their RRSP accounts. And so I put 33% of the portfolio in uh, a short-term Canadian government bond, uh, Canadian bond index fund. Uh, and then I'd split the rest between a U.S. stock index, a Canadian stock index, uh, a developed international, and then an emerging stock index. So. It's safer. It's more diversified. It's it's not likely to even beat uh, a stock market index, but it's going to be a lot less volatile. So it should be something that emotionally investors should be able to to handle, be feel comfortable about adding money to it continually. Um, second defense I have for the portfolio is uh, is the short term, of course, that we've looked at this four and a half year period. And I think I think for most people, an investment lifetime is going to be about 55 years long. So if we start at age 25, and we live until we're 90, even after we retire, our money needs to continue working for us, because we're only withdrawing a piece of it. It's not like we withdraw everything upon the date we retire. So well, yeah, and I was poking fun at you, of course, for being in, in last place in the contest because I actually think that there's a really important lesson here. And as you described, the portfolio that you built was a long-term, broadly diversified portfolio that could be your entire nest egg, right? Whereas Absolutely. I think if you were to look at the others, I mean, these were portfolios very concentrated, a uh, small number of stocks, some of them, you know, I don't know, 10 to 15 stocks, sometimes all in one sector or mostly in one sector that can certainly do very well over a uh, short period. And I think anyone who's a long-term index investor has confronted this kind of question, right? Because they've got friends who invest in the way, you know, like with portfolios very similar to one of these strategy lab alternatives. And so they're going to get questions like, you know, why would I want to use a strategy like yours when my stocks are kicking their butts? Um, but, you know, as you've described, an indexing strategy is not designed to win a stock picking contest. It's designed for uh, a portfolio that you will be able to hold on to for decades. All right. Um, last question for you, Andrew. I just want to say, I mean, you are without a doubt, the most globetrotting of indexing advocates that I've known. Uh, a lot of us focus our efforts in a single country. But in your books, uh, both Millionaire Teacher and your second book, The Global Expatriate's Guide to Investing, you know, you've described how to implement this strategy in countries around the world. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit, tell us about the types of audience you've been speaking to these days as you, uh, as you promote the book and, and your ideas. Well, I talked to a lot of of expatriates uh, and a lot of international school teachers. And there are a lot of people that live abroad, working abroad. I'll give you an example. In, in, in Dubai alone, there are 100,000 British people living in Dubai and working in Dubai, which really blew my mind when I found that out. Um, 
and and typically they end up investing in very expensive financial products. Uh, even the Americans who work overseas often end up paying about three percent a year in investment fees to firms that come in and sell actively managed products and then charge wrap fees on top of that, which is crazy. We thought we paid the highest fees in the world as Canadians, but expats beat us. Mm-hmm. So typically, too, the groups that I'm speaking to don't end up getting defined benefit pensions. Um, they may not even end up getting their full allotment of, uh, say, U.S. Social Security if they're living abroad, or they may not be maximizing their, their Canadian pensionable benefits either if they do eventually come to uh, to repatriate to Canada. So they're on their own. Their, their investments really have to hum. They, they can't afford to mess around. And so that's one of the reasons I like to go to international schools and into international communities to talk to them about saving and investing appropriately. Yeah, and I should mention to our listeners too, I mean, Andrew, you, you have done virtually all of this, I think, uh, on your own nickel. I'm sure they pay your expenses, but, you know, you don't have these huge speaking fees. I know when you were a teacher, you know, you bought boxes of investing books with your own money and distributed them to your colleagues. Uh, I think you've been an amazing advocate for the strategy and and you've helped a lot of people around the world. So keep fighting the good fight and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Dan. I appreciate it. If you haven't read Andrew Hallam's Millionaire Teacher, I encourage you to pick up the brand new second edition. So I'll include a link to the book on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com. And I'll also include some links to other articles by Andrew and to the Globe and Mail Strategy Lab, which we discussed in the interview. It's time again for another installment of Bad Investment Advice where we take aim at commentary in the financial media that seems designed to confuse and frighten investors. Now, today's little gem is from Seeking Alpha, a website that claims to be devoted to stock market insights. This particular insight was posted on January 12th, and it's called The Passive Investing Bubble is Real. I bet that title got your attention. Now, the author of this piece seems worried that index investing has become way too popular. He quotes some research showing that the proportion of equity assets that are indexed has reached nearly 40%, about double what it was in 2005. And then he suggests that this can't continue for much longer. And I quote, why? Because if so much money is going passive, there are fewer dollars chasing active opportunities. This in turn makes those opportunities ever more profitable and large enough in time that those who pursue strategies which track them finally begin to generate alpha which is industry jargon for market-beating returns. He goes on, I suspect we are near this point across the entire investable landscape. So what he's saying here is that although most active strategies may lag their benchmarks now, index investing is sowing the seeds of its own destruction. He's saying that, in fact, he's been saying this for a while. Uh, In an earlier article, the same author again called index investing a bubble, and he wrote, We are at a non-equilibrium point now, such that so much money has rushed into passive strategies that they simply cannot be efficient. Wow, how to respond to this. I don't even know what it means when people describe indexing as a bubble. And I'm hearing this term more and more. 
A bubble describes a situation in which the price of a group of assets has reached an extremely high level that no longer seems to reflect the intrinsic value of those assets. So think about real estate in Japan in the 1980s, uh, tulip bulbs in 17th century Holland. Now compare that to indexing. I mean, the growing popularity of indexing is the result of cheaper, more widely available funds and a growing awareness that active strategies tend to disappoint. How can that possibly be described as a bubble? It's an evolution in the financial services marketplace. You may as well argue that the decline of travel agents is causing a bubble in online hotel bookings, or that TV viewers canceling their expensive cable packages are creating a Netflix bubble. I mean, if we're going to have a debate about this issue, then we at least need to stop using that completely inappropriate term. There's no bubble, and the whole concept of an indexing bubble doesn't even make sense. But to give them the benefit of the doubt, the main argument in this article and others like it is at least worth taking seriously. So it's not actually a new idea. Um, it's based on the idea that index investing is something of a free ride. I mean, after all, how do we know that Royal Bank is worth $93 a share or that Enbridge is worth $55 a share? And these market prices are set by investors who research the fundamentals of the company and then actively buy and sell their shares based on that analysis. Now compare that to if you're a couch potato investor. I mean, you hold these stocks inside your index funds, but you don't really pay any meaningful role in what an economist would call the price discovery process. Right? Even the managers of the index fund are not really concerned whether Royal Bank or Enbridge is overvalued or undervalued. They only need to know the weight of these companies in the benchmark index, and then they buy and sell accordingly. They let active investors do all the heavy lifting, and that work is precisely what makes markets so effective and efficient. So that much is true. Now, all of this would be fine if index investors make up only a small portion of the market, but many people have wondered, what would happen if everyone was an index investor? Well, now you would have no one analyzing the fundamentals of companies. The market would just be made up of a bunch of mindless passive investors who paid little attention to prices. And as a result, those markets would no longer be efficient. And at that point, the active managers who had been patiently waiting on the sidelines would be in a position to swoop in and take advantage. So in theory, at least, they would be able to exploit the hapless passive investors and earn index beating returns. So if we accept that the theory of this is true, the question becomes, what proportion of the stock market needs to be made up of active investors in order to maintain its efficiency? Now, the author of our Seeking Alpha article seems to think that with 40% of assets managed passively, we've already crossed the line. But how can a passive 40% of the market dominate an active 60%? I mean, wouldn't a market that included maybe 20 or 25% active investors still be able to establish fair pricing just by trading among themselves? I mean, to use it as a parallel, in a community where there are thousands of houses, you only need a few dozen buyers and sellers to establish the market value of those houses. So I don't think anyone knows where the tipping point is. I mean, I would concede maybe if indexers were to become 90 or 95% of market participants, then we might have a problem. But even then, as soon as the market became inefficient, some proportion of those index investors would recognize the opportunities and they'd switch to an active strategy to exploit them. And at the end of the day, let's get real here. I mean, can anyone truly see a day 
when virtually all investors will simply buy and hold index funds? I mean, given the human tendency toward greed and overconfidence, that seems highly unlikely. In any case, whenever I hear arguments like this, my response is pretty simple. Bring it on. I mean, if people like our Seeking Alpha author really believe there's an indexing bubble and that stock pickers can now eat our lunch, I invite you to try. But then I'm going to challenge you to follow up your rhetoric by publishing your audited performance numbers and comparing that with an appropriate benchmark. Speaking of which, let's return to this idea that the rising popularity of indexing over the last decade or so has led to inefficiencies. If that were true, then we should have seen that reflected in the performance of active managers over that period. And yet, According to the latest report from Standard & Poor's, over the 10-year period ending June 2016, less than 15% of large-cap U.S. equity managers outperformed their benchmark. And for mid- and small-cap managers, that number was less than 10%. So maybe index investors are lobbing a bunch of fat pitches, but instead of hitting them out of the park, it looks like the active managers are still swinging and missing. So please, if you're going to prattle on about indexing being a bubble and using this ominous you've been warned language, you need to present some evidence to back up your words. And instead of making vague pronouncements, suggest a specific strategy and make a coherent argument for how you plan to exploit the indexers. Show us your track record of outperformance in the past and explain why it should be expected to persist in the future. Until you can do that, I'll continue filing your alarmist articles along with all of the other bad investment advice. And it's time once again for our Ask the Spud segment, where I answer questions from listeners and blog readers. And with me, as always, is my PWL colleague, Amanda DL. So, Amanda, what is today's question? Our question comes from Brandon. He's 36 years old and is wondering how his portfolio should evolve over the years as he heads toward retirement. And his question is, currently my portfolio is 25% bonds and GICs and 75% equities, and I'm comfortable with this level of risk. Retirement is a long way off, but I know that I'll want a more balanced portfolio then. For example, I might want to hold 40% fixed income in 30 years. Does it make sense to make that transition gradually? maybe by moving half a percent from equities to fixed income each year? Would it be better to leave things as they are and reassess every five years? Or maybe make these moves only in the next decade before retirement? Okay, thanks for the question. As Brendan understands, the conventional wisdom in investing is that your portfolio should get progressively more conservative as you approach retirement. Now, this makes sense because as your time horizon gets shorter, you no longer have the same ability to recover from a long bear market. There's even a common rule of thumb you've probably heard that your allocation to fixed income should be roughly equal to your age. So at 36 years old, Brendan should hold roughly 36% of his portfolio in bonds and GICs. And then by age 65, he'd increase that to 65%. Some people who like this rule have asked me questions similar to Brendan's. That is, should I gradually increase my target bond allocation by about 1% every year? Now, I think most people will agree there's not much value in being so literal here. I mean, even if you do plan to make your portfolio more conservative as you get older, this is not an adjustment you need to make annually on your birthday. Um, there's no meaningful difference in risk between a portfolio that is 25% bonds and one that's 26% or even 27 or 28%, especially if the portfolio is relatively small. 
Let's remember that markets move every day. So even if your asset mix is precisely on target today, it won't be tomorrow. And that's fine. Asset allocation, it's like horseshoes. Close is good enough. In fact, depending on your circumstances, you really might not need to change your target asset allocation more than a couple of times throughout your life. I mean, you might start out with a relatively aggressive portfolio when you're young, as Brendan has done, and then maybe dial back that risk in your 50s when your mortgage is paid off, your kids are gone, you're in your peak earning years and you're saving at a higher rate than you were before. And then as you get within a few years of retirement, you should probably have a proper financial plan prepared and that might reveal that you can achieve your goals with a quite conservative portfolio so you can dial back the risk once more. And then after that, you might just maintain that allocation for the rest of your life. Because the key idea here is your asset allocation decision needs to be based on a lot more than just your age. I've always liked the framework that author Larry Swedro uses in his books. He says that your asset mix should be based on your ability, willingness, and need to take risk. So your ability to take risk depends on your time horizon, which is related to your age, but also to the stability of your income. So for example, if you're a tenured professor, you have more ability to take risk than a commissioned salesperson because your income is more reliable. Uh, your willingness to take risk depends really on your stomach for losses. It's entirely temperamental. That is related to your experience with investing, but it really doesn't have anything to do with your age. And then finally, your need to take risk depends on how close you are to achieving your financial goal and the rate of return that you require. So if, for example, you retire with a large portfolio and a solid pension, your need to take risk is probably very low, whereas someone with no pension may need to take a little more risk in search of more growth in their personal portfolio. So although your time horizon is indeed always getting a little bit shorter, these other factors may not change very much over time, and they certainly don't change every year. If you have a high tolerance for risk, for example, that's not likely to get lower as you get older. In fact, it might get higher as you gain more experience with investing. And maybe your financial plan would suggest that your required rate of return today is the same as it was 10 years ago. So you may only need to adjust your asset allocation after you've considered all of these factors together. So Brendan, I don't think that you need to make any changes to your asset allocation for maybe five years or so, uh, unless something changes in your circumstances, your income, your retirement plans, maybe you receive an inheritance that significantly increases your net worth, or maybe we have a deep bear market and you discover that you really aren't that comfortable with an aggressive portfolio after all. So until then, sit tight, keep saving, rebalance when necessary, and just stick to your long-term plan. Thanks, Dan. And remember, if you've got a question that you'd like answered on a future installment of Ask the Spud, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com, and Dan may answer it on an upcoming podcast. That brings us to the end of podcast number five. Once again, I want to give a big thanks to all of the people who make this possible. Nick Jaworski of Podcast Monster is our producer and editor. Jono Bacon composed and recorded the music. Amanda DL joins me for the Ask the Spud segment. And Tara Hunt of Truly Social pulls all the strings. Thanks also to PWL Capital for their ongoing support and to all of you for listening and for your kind reviews and ratings on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It does help to grow our audience. Our next episode will be in early March. Stay warm. We'll see you then.